Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Military Medicine Podcast, hosted by Matt Kane and myself, James Coote. This episode's a bit different. Though it stays true to our medical innovation roots, it actually contains four interviews for the price of one, which we conducted at the prolonged field care-themed medical innovation conference hosted in Birmingham in October 2018. Thanks to the event organisers Clarion for allowing us to do this, and in particular Sue Min from Clarion. First up, to set the scene, we get the Surgeon General's thoughts on the conference and asked him whether the Defence Medical Services are still at the cutting edge of innovation. Then we interview Colonel Nigel Tai following a live demonstration of an augmented reality surgical reachback capability, in which he'd just guided a surgeon colleague and her man through a complex operation from the conference hall in Birmingham. Thirdly, we speak to Lieutenant Commander Will Sharp about his four months as the medical officer aboard HMS Enterprise in the Mediterranean during the migrant crisis, where he saw large volumes of challenging patients from cradle to grave. And finally, Lieutenant Colonel Harvey Pinn talks about a new Defence Medical Services innovation, using intramuscular auto-injectors of TXA, transexamic acid, rather than intravenous infusions, to enable administration of TXA on the front line, potentially saving lives that would otherwise be lost to trauma. We start with an introductory couple of minutes with the Surgeon General, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Uh, Lieutenant Jen Bignall, pleasure to have you here. Sue, what do you think of the conference so far? The great thing about this conference is it's combining formal presentations uh, and demonstrating our research and our academic credibility, uh, alongside the opportunity to think beyond that into actually putting capability into the hands of the user about innovation and what is it we need to do both as a community and the staff system that delivers Uh, new technology to our people uh, in support of our armed forces personnel wherever they are deployed across the globe. And innovation is quite a hot word at the moment, obviously at this conference especially. What's the DMS doing in particular to innovate? So in many ways we are one of the exemplars of innovation as a learning system and today I announced the publication of the book Military Medicine in Iraq and Afghanistan which is very much you know, a thick volume of description of how during that decade and a half we were able to demonstrate an innovation and learning loop. The challenge for us now is capturing the information from uh, multiple different smaller scale disparate operations and exercises and bringing them back into the system so that we continue to evolve and improve. Would you say that the DMS is at the cutting edge of medical innovation still? So uh, we are in terms of thinking. Sometimes we are not able to react exactly at the pace at which other organisations can. But of course that's the whole purpose of the J-Hub and the idea about freeing up creativity for the high value, low cost, small change that can make such a difference. And that's why the J-Hub inside the JFC um, architecture is such a great idea in terms of stimulating innovation and sort of giving us giving everybody a sense they can be part of it as opposed to waiting you know for a 15-year equipment program to deliver something really big like an aircraft carrier when all we might need to do is think about a different software application to put on a mobile phone that can enable us to communicate in a completely different way fantastic thank you we won't take any more years thank you very much
Next on the podcast, we speak to Colonel Nigel Ty, a consultant vascular and trauma surgeon and the new head of the MedHub, following a live demonstration of an augmented reality surgical reachback capability. So, Colonel Ty, thanks for, for joining us. Just We saw you earlier on uh, with a video link to what looked like some simulator surgery. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it was... Um a really interesting morning where I have had the opportunity to test and play with um, an app, uh, Proximy, which allows both reach forward and reach back, uh, a virtual presence, if you will, um, in the telemedicine field. So the clinical scenario was a patient who had sustained a gunshot wound to the torso and was being treated in a Roll 2 facility many thousands of miles away. And in actual fact, we were able to simulate this uh, courtesy of the exercise that's going on at the moment um, in a man which is very well known about it's called safe Surrey. it's one of the largest exercises that um, uh, defense has put on in a while and we have a roll two facility there and one of the surgeons uh, was able to simulate uh, treating a uh, and actually operating on a casualty and he was reaching back for advice from me mm. so the situation was this patient had been shot um, and I was able to see the wound courtesy of this, uh, this software and the audio-visual link that had been set up. And I was able to actually um, denote on the actual um, monitor that the surgeon there was looking at uh, where he should make his incisions, the kind of surgical maneuvers that he needed to do to get the patient out of trouble. Um, and it really felt like I was alongside him. And speaking to him after the exercise, he said it was almost like I was um, looking over the top of his shoulder and helping him to perform surgical manoeuvres, which um, he wasn't very familiar with, um, to the betterment of the casualty. So in a nutshell, that's what I was up to. What does the hardware look like? Will a booth have to be set up for this in Birmingham that the surgeon will have to get out of bed to come to if there is okay, an emergency? So, or? So, so if your listeners, I'll just run through what was in front of me. There was a laptop computer there was a headset and that was it and, and do you think it will be useful in deployed care in the future can you see this great, being used great question so i think i think there are two parts to that to an answer um or at least two ways in which you can consider the answer the first is you know, where is it really going to be useful in terms of saving life well exactly the kind of case that we moulage today you know over um a, a link that stretched between here and a man and that is how do you, in, in, a, in an era of ever-increasing surgical specialisation, how do you give somebody um, help when you're remote from that particular surgeon who may not have familiarity with the procedure required to salvage the patient? This may well be an answer. Um, Proximity may well be an answer. In which case, it's going to be very useful in those infrequent but high-impact cases where the operating surgeon really needs a hand to help him or her to... Uh, kind of do the right thing when it's needed. So that's that's the first slice of value. I think the second slice of value comes in a much more frequent, uh, non-life-saving but still important scenarios where a primary healthcare practitioner or a medic, for instance, needs advice about a soft tissue injury or some skin dermatological problems or eye problems, um, and needs to reach back and show the uh, expert at home what's going on and for the expert at home to then in real time interact with the picture that he or she is seeing and be able to give real time advice that may save 
that uh, patient from having to be taken back to a role three or even evacuated from the country. So that's probably the group of patients that it will be more often used in. But the really high impact cases, the difficult surgeries uh, will be less frequent, but still very impactful. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time, Colonel Ty. Pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Now he speaks to Lieutenant Commander Will Sharp, a Royal Navy doctor, about his experiences as the medical officer on HMS Enterprise on Op Litton in the Mediterranean during the migrant crisis. So, Sergeant Lieutenant Commander Will Sharp, so your type of your speech today, which is really interesting, was uh, delivery of the uh, maritime medical care for the Mediterranean humanitarian crisis. Can you just give us a little bit of overview of what you were talking about and what your experiences were? Yeah, so I was uh, attached as a GP on board HMS Enterprise in 2016, uh, deployed on board for, for almost four months. And we were in the Mediterranean at a time where we were seeing uh, the mass transition of people sent off the coast from, from North Africa um, across into the Med. Um, HMS Enterprise was uh, sort of undertaking a couple of roles. One was protection of the NGO vessels um, in the area of operations and as a stopgap when NGOs were often full to capacity um, of migrants they had rescued, we'd often undertake migrant rescues ourselves. So I headed up a medical team of between uh, four and five of us, one doctor and um, three or four MAs or LMAs um, in delivering that care for that period of time. And so from your talk, it seems to have you had a wide spectrum of cases you had, you're picking up migrants who've been perhaps dehydrated in the sea to full scale to picking up and having to do CPR on patients. Can you just give me an idea of what what the whole spectrum was really, you, patients you were seeing? Yeah, so from, from a rescue point of view, we were seeing um, patients effectively for, from cradle to grave. Um, the youngest individual we picked up was 14 days old. We had multiple pregnant women on board. Um, there was a likelihood that we could have even had a uh, woman going to labour on board and being outside helicopter range, so we had to dealt with that scenario, which has happened with all the other NGOs. Um, but we were seeing, you know, a, a wide spectrum of disease and pathology um, from gunshot wounds right through to nasty cases of sepsis. I was involved in the resuscitation or heading the resuscitation of an eight-week-old who was septic um, and probably would have died if we hadn't have picked him up because we were only at the start of a rescue that day and we had 60 hours before we were to to, to reach a port of safety. Um, but we also saw, you know, s- simple things like seasickness, gastritis, um, right through to um, a scenario where in the course of 24 hours, I had eight patients present with pyrexias from sub-Saharan Africa, um, which obviously uh, is a significant concern as to what, what potentially that could be. Um, so a wide spectrum of disease, and unfortunately, um, coming across a few of these vessels, we were picking up deceased or people in a, in a very, very, very sick way. And the theme of this conference is innovation. Did you find yourself in scenarios where you're having to improvise, innovate to, in obviously these really challenging situations? So our natural way of triaging patients up um, the side of the ship was through a pilot ladder. If they could climb a pilot ladder, they're, they're effectively P3 so the likelihood is when they meet the medic at the top, they'll go off, get some fluids, get some food, you know, and then present to us if they're, if, they're, if they're still having problems. Those people who couldn't get up the pilot ladder and were particularly exhausted, dehydrated in the boats, 
we, uh, we, we did something very simple, just gave our sea boats and our medics um, plenty of glucose tablets, everybody's carrying them around, a bottle of water and a bit of rehydration, a bit of, bit of glucose and five minutes just sat resting while everybody else was being brought up the ladder does wonders and then we often found that these people could just come straight on board and actually when they got some sustenance in they didn't need our support um, so very simple basic things make a big difference uh, a lot of healthcare professionals probably aspire to practicing in austere environments whether yeah. they want to go and join msf if they're civilian or perhaps in military contexts can deploy in operations is there anything that particularly has prepared you for these really difficult situations that you would recommend to anyone else? Uh, well, do you know what I did do? I took, I downloaded a lot of YouTube videos of okay. worst case scenarios. Ah, okay. Things like um, women having breach deliveries, IO, use of IOs, um, also videos of migrant rescues that had gone wrong. Um, because what I wanted to do is build some resilience in the medics I, was, I had on board um, in order for them to to recognise that death and drownings were a high probability and had a, there was a sort of high likelihood uh, that we were going to see that. And it's really important to just focus the mindset around scenarios which you will feel uncomfortable with, but if you've talked through it beforehand, at least you're not quite on the back foot. Um, some of the basic stuff is pretty ingrained already so so it's for those more complex patients you could either reach back or delve into your other resources finally we speak to lieutenant colonel harvey pin consultant in pre-hospital care on transexamic acid txa and how using intramuscular auto injectors to administer it could save lives otherwise lost to traumatic injuries lieutenant colonel harvey pin thank you very much for joining us on the military medicine podcast at med innovation um, gave a really good talk earlier on tranexamic acid intramuscular auto-injectors. Um, first of all, for our listeners, could you explain what tranexamic acid is and what it does? So when our body clots, our natural systems within our body want to break down that clot because clot is bad for us unless we're bleeding. Yeah. So tranexamic acid stops the process of clot breakdown. The other facet to tranexamic acid and why it's important in trauma is that part of the response to trauma is what's known as the acute coagulopathy of trauma. And when we get that, when we've been traumatically injured, uh, our body goes into hyperfibrinolysis. So it goes into overdrive with the clot breakdown. So tranexamic acid stops that process. It's also got anti-inflammatory components to it as well which is also good in trauma so those are the two features really and what's the end effect of that if you give it to someone who's had a traumatic injury so in essence it, if someone's had a traumatic injury they're bleeding we know that bleeding kills people on the battlefield yeah um, and most of our trauma deaths on the battlefield that are potentially salvageable are bleeding uh, if we can stop the bleeding first of all and prevent further bleeding by the use of tranexamic acid then that has to be a good thing for our soldiers brilliant so a lot of our audience will be aware that tranexamic acid is often administered in an A&E department through a cannula um, obviously that's difficult in the field so can you tell us a little bit about the innovation that you presented today which sort of gets around this difficulty yeah so tranexamic acid as a result of crush 2 the woman study uh, and the matter, matters retrospective analysis uh, has been looking at IV tranexamic acid. One gram, 
usually as an infusion over 10 minutes, followed by one gram over eight hours later on as an infusion. Obviously, that needs to be given IV. Yeah. We know that tranexamic acid works best the earlier it is given. Yeah. And there is a 10 to 15% reduction in efficacy with every 15-minute delay in the delivery of tranexamic acid. So we need to give it early. We also know that getting a cannula into people who are sick yeah. and hypovolemic is difficult, especially in the pre-hospital space. So ideally, we'd like to give it IV, but we know that that is not necessarily going to be appropriate or possible, certainly in a military setting. So why don't we just give it intramuscularly, simple procedure, and then that can be cross-decked into other areas, such as the resource-poor setting with the postpartum hemorrhaging lady, Midwives can't do IV access, why can't they give an IM auto-injector? Our civilian ambulance service, paramedics, again, getting tranexamic acid in early, ideally IV, why not IM? The other thing is, obviously, all of our people have been used to having morphine auto-injectors. They're yeah. used to having auto-injectors. So we need to get on the back of the corporate knowledge and the understanding of what auto-injectors do. Now we've removed morphine as an auto-injector and replaced it with fentanyl lozenges. This is now a very good time to replace that auto-injector with another auto-injector because our people know how to use it. So how long before you think we can expect to see this in service and what are the barriers to that? What's stopping us now? So the, the, the two main barriers, one is the science, one is the practical. Uh, so from a science perspective, there have been healthy volunteer studies done in the 60s and 70s looking at the blood levels of TXA from intramuscular injection. We need to repeat that study in healthy volunteers to prove that the blood levels from intramuscular injection are satisfactory to have the anti-fibrinolytic effect. So that's the healthy volunteer study. We'd like to replicate that in a true a traumatically injured cohort of people yeah. uh, and we'll be looking to do that in the UK later this year. The other facet is the practical uh, and it's getting a pharma company on board to develop an auto-injector and to stick uh, 500 milligrams of TXA in an auto-injector. That sounds very straightforward. We know there's lots of auto-injectors out there but actually we need to bridge that gap and get a pharma company on site to deliver that capability and that's where J-Hope come in. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much for your time. Uh, really appreciate it sir. Thank no you. problems. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Don't forget to write a reflection on this for your own CPD and please do subscribe to the podcast, engage us on Twitter at Podcast Medicine or let us know your thoughts either in the review section on Twitter or through email militarymedicinepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.